Hey, we're going to be in Luke chapter 1 today as we uh, explore this fourth Sunday of Advent, a Sunday devoted to love. And we're going to be uh, looking at the story of Mary, an angel that came and gave her a very special announcement. So if you have a Bible, turn to Luke chapter 1. That's where we'll be. It'll serve as a prelude to the story that we're going to tell on Friday night. There is really no way to describe a trip to Israel, or a, a, an area of the world commonly known as the Holy Land. Uh, Lauren, my wife, and I, we were able to do that um, three years ago. It was three years ago this December that we were able to do that. And I just can't describe what it's like to walk in the footsteps of Jesus, to go to the places that he went and see where he lived, to be in places where he performed miracles where certain things and events happened uh, in his life, to be in close geographic proximity to all of these stories that we read in the Bible. It's, it's pretty amazing. The Hebrew word for glory is kavod, which also means weight or heaviness. And so when you are in these places, there is like a weightiness or a heaviness that is palpable. And it, it's just a feeling that I'd never uh, felt before. However, on, on your tour, when you go, uh, unless you go with me, I'll make sure this doesn't happen. But uh, on other tours, there's always somebody in that, uh, in that tour group that is the wise guy. And, and you'll be sitting in a place and you'll be connecting with the Lord and you'll be thinking about how special it is to be in the place where Jesus rose from the dead or the place where Jesus was born. And they'll like elbow, elbow you in the ribs as you're praying and they'll be like, now you know this is a place they believe is where Jesus was raised. It isn't the actual place they don't really know for sure. You know, there was this guy on our tour that did that several times. I just had to say, man, you're ruining the whole thing for me. Would you go sit in the bus, please? Um, just, just so, so anyway, watch out for that guy if, if you're on one of these tours. But if it's not where, you know, we're at, I mean, how far could it be? So, I mean, to be even in the same zip code, and some of these places are pretty special. And, and what I remember about that experience is, is the surprise places. I mean, I, I was certainly looking forward to Bethlehem. I was certainly looking forward to Jerusalem. But uh, these places where Jesus was born, where he rose from the dead, uh, those, those were high on my list, and they're going to be on every tour. But there were these places that surprised me with a sense of awe and wonder. And one of those places was Nazareth. We know that, that Mary was from Nazareth, and we know it was there that the Holy Spirit came upon her. The angel said, the Holy Spirit will come on you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you, and you're going to give birth to a son, and he's going to be the Son of God. And this moment in Luke chapter 1 is called the Annunciation. And so there in Nazareth, at the site where they believed Mary lived, is a chapel, and this, or a cathedral rather, and this cathedral is built on top of a grotto. Grottoes were carved into the rock, and this is where people lived. And so they excavated this grotto, and tradition believes this is where Mary lived. And so on top of this grotto, this cathedral is built on this site that they believed an angel appeared to Mary. We know the angel appeared to Mary, but what the archaeologists are telling us is very well could be this grotto where an angel appeared to Mary and announced to her that she was going to have a baby. And that moment surprised me, and, and it just filled me with a sense of wonder, like, like that I just wasn't expecting. 
And here's what sent me over the edge uh, in, in that moment. You go down to the grotto and you, and, and you see where they've set up an altar. And on this altar is where they administer the, the Eucharist or the Lord's Supper uh, when they have worship services there. And on this altar is a, a, a tablecloth. And, and I'm going to show it to you. And on, in, in Latin is written a phrase that if I gave you enough guesses, I bet you would figure it out. But the Latin phrase on this, on this table runner, it says, verbum caro he factum est. And, and, and the Bible quizzers in the room could probably figure out what they're trying to uh, communicate there. It actually was our text from last week, John 1.14. The word became flesh. So they are written on Latin at the altar in the Church of the Annunciation are, are, is the word, John 1.14, the word became flesh. But they've done something that our tour guide had to point out for me, and I'm glad she did. What they've done in that place and on that table runner, they've added one Latin word that changes John 1.14 just a little bit. This is the only place on the earth where you can add this word. They've added the, the Latin word he, it's that word in the middle, H-I-E. Verbum caro he, factum est. And it changes the translation to this. The word became flesh here. Here, in this place. This is where the, the word became flesh. And as I thought about that, that idea, that, that this abstract thing that I've studied theologically, this thing that I've thought about in church settings literally all my life, it happened here, in this place, at, at this time. It was just a, another reminder that, that God has broken into the specifics of our world. This message of Christmas is, is not something that happens uh, abstractly to people in far-off places. It's not something that God has done that, that has little or impact upon our regular life here. No, God, the Word became flesh here in Nazareth and with her, both here and her. There was a moment in time where it happened. And as I thought about that, and I want us to think about this as well, what does it mean for a 15-year-old girl who's pledged to be married, what does it mean when the Word becomes flesh here with her and now? What are the implications of that moment that, that the angel announced? We know that Mary was engaged to be married to Joseph, and so the news of her pregnancy would obviously mean the end of that. And the end of her engagement to Joseph would mean that she would be ostracized. It, mean, it means that she would be damaged goods. It means that her hope of, her parents' hope of brokering a successful marriage to, to anyone else of any kind of standing are, are pretty much gone at that point. Uh, also, the knowledge of her being pregnant out of wedlock would, would be an, an additional stigma upon her. It would ostracize her. And any means of a quote-unquote normal or any chance of a productive life is gone in that announcement. Things were going to change for Mary because the Word became flesh here. 
with her. And then, in that time, and in that place. And as we reflect on Luke chapter 1, I, I would just ask you, is that situation far from us? I mean, are the complications of an unplanned pregnancy far away from us? They are not. They are not. The experience of being an unwed mother living in poverty with an unplanned pregnancy happens literally every day. This was exactly Mary's situation. And, and I, and I want to just sort of snap it into focus a little more. And, and I want to apologize for even going down this road because I don't have near enough time to, to fully uh, explore what I, I'm going to say. But, you know, as, as you think about women in this situation, uh, there, our society has multiple ways to address this. And so you hear a lot of people on one side of an argument say that, well, when women are faced with an unplanned pregnancy perhaps a pregnancy that is an inconvenience to them, or most likely a pregnancy that creates a financial hardship for them and they feel unable to carry it to full term and to deliver the baby, one solution is to terminate the pregnancy. So you, you hear arguments for that, and then you also hear arguments against that. And what we believe the Bible says is that all human beings are created in the image of God and that life begins very early in the biological process of conception and birth. And what you have are people that like to argue and debate and decide whether or not this should be criminalized what the best solution is to that. And I only bring it up because if you've turned on the news, you've heard a healthy dose of that in recent days. My intention here today is not to solve that or to state our position on being a pro-life people. You can read that on the Nazarene website, and I'm very proud of our statement. My intention in saying that today is when we talk about women in this situation, do we see the face of Jesus' mother? Do we see Mary? And what Luke 1 tells us is we should. Luke is very clear to explain all of the things that Mary is facing and all of the challenges and all of the hardships that would come her way as a result of this pregnancy. How many people are going to believe the story that what is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit? How many people are going to believe the story that an angel has revealed to her that this baby she's going to give birth to is the Messiah and is the Son of God and will save people from their sins. How many people are going to believe that? And so she was in a very difficult situation and our friends and neighbors and family members face that all the time. Do we see the face of the mother of Jesus? 
And are we wanting a legislature? Church, let me ask you this question. Are we wanting an elected legislature or an elected president or a Senate-approved court of judges to tell us what the most pro-life response should be? Perhaps the church needs to show the world what a pro-life response is and should be. Perhaps the world needs to, the church needs to wrap its arms around women in this situation and say, you are loved, you are welcomed. God has a plan for your baby. There is a community of people here that wants to love your baby and support you and walk with you through this. Perhaps the the most, not perhaps, the most pro-life thing we can do as a people is to welcome and support and love families in this situation. Somebody help me out here. All right. I'm not out on a limb here, am I? Because the word became flesh here and with her. And now, because of what God has done in Christ, we can say, you're welcomed You are loved here. There's an amazing plan for your baby. And if it feels kind of chaotic, if it feels like there's a lot more questions than there are answers, can I remind you what Mary was going through? Can I remind you that Jesus was born into this kind of chaos? Jesus was born into this kind of dysfunction? Jesus was born into this, this a situation with all these kinds of questions. Jesus was born to a mother who had very few people that would support her in her journey. And Mary, knowing all of this, Luke 1, 38, Mary says this after the angel leaves her, I am the Lord's servant, Mary answered. May your word to me be fulfilled. I'm the Lord's servant. May your word to me be fulfilled. What an amazing statement of faith. Something that we should hear and be inspired by today. So what is your here and now moment? What is your situation of of chaos or dysfunction? Or what are the questions that you bring into this place? What are the unresolved issues that, that you're dealing with during this Advent season The good news is that God comes. God becomes flesh in your here and in your now. Not only does God become flesh here in Nazareth, God becomes flesh here in your life, in real, in tangible ways, and in the present. He's with you now. And so Luke tells a story of what Mary does, and he's very intentional to make sure you understand that right after this news of an unplanned pregnancy comes to Mary, Mary decides it's better if I go off for a while. And we have a long history of women women making that very choice. Faced with an unplanned pregnancy, they maybe the family decides, you know, it's better if you go stay with your relatives for a while. Why don't you just go away for nine months or so and, and we'll we'll figure something out? And so Mary goes. She goes to see her relative Elizabeth. And 
not only is she going away because that is something that is very common for women to do in this situation, but who are the only people that might possibly believe that an angel showed up and gave her an announcement? Who are the only people that might possibly believe that what is conceived in her is a miracle of the Holy Spirit? There's only two people on the planet. Well, there's three. Joseph, who had an angel show up at his doorstep as well. But then the other two people are Zechariah and Elizabeth. Zechariah had an encounter with an angel himself, and Elizabeth was now six months pregnant with a pretty miraculous baby herself. And so these are the only two people that might possibly believe Mary's story and support her. And so she goes to Elizabeth and Zechariah. And we know Elizabeth is carrying John the Baptist, one who is going to go before Jesus and prepare the way. And Luke tells us that as soon as Mary greets Elizabeth and the sound of Mary's greeting reaches the baby in Elizabeth's womb, the baby leaps for joy. The baby begins to kick. The baby begins to create all kinds of commotion. So noticeable that Elizabeth says, something's going on here. God is doing something special. As soon as my baby heard your greeting, he got really excited. You see, because this is what he was appointed to do. He was appointed to get really excited about the coming of Jesus. And so it was a confirmation. It was a, it was a moment where both Elizabeth and Mary felt confirmed that God was doing something special, that he was breaking in in ways that he had never done so before and that God could be trusted, that this way forward could be trusted. And you wish in this moment that this confirmation that, that Mary receives, you know, if she could just explain it all in maybe like four or five points, give us details, give us really rich prose, a really rich explanation of what she's feeling and what she's, what's going on here, that actually would be great. But she doesn't take time to do any of that. Instead, she bursts forth into a song. And this song emerges from the, the joy in her heart, the joy of knowing that this statement of faith, this, this journey of faith that she has committed to was confirmed by her relatives and by God. In that moment, she bursts forth in song. And so let's read it together. It's Luke chapter 1, verse 46. And Mary said, My soul glorifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. From now on, all generations will call me blessed, for the Mighty One has done great things for me. Holy is his name. His mercy extends to those who fear him from generation to generation. He has performed mighty deeds, and with his arm, he has scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. He's brought down rulers from their thrones, but has lifted up the humble. He's filled the hungry with good things, but he has sent the rich away empty. He's helped his servant Israel, remembering to be merciful to Abraham and his descendants forever, just as he promised our ancestors. It's Mary's song. It's a section of scripture known as the Magnificat. Now, if you'll remember that, you can win some Christmas trivia at some, at some party in the future. Mary's song called the Magnificat. 
And this is not the first time an Israelite woman has sung in response to something amazing that God has done. I think about Exodus chapter 15, where the Israelites, they cross the Red Sea. God parts the waters and the Israelites cross on dry ground and they get safely to the other side. And as the Egyptian army goes in to, to, to follow them and to recapture them and take them back to Egypt, as the last Israelite foot is lifted up from the Red Sea, the Lord allows the waters to crash down upon the Egyptians. And I just imagine like a broken chariot wheel kind of washing up on the shore on the other side and, and Miriam, Moses' sister, the first worship leader that we read about. She, uh, Exodus describes her as a prophet. And she goes down and she picks up a tambourine and she begins to lead the Israelites in worship. And here's her song. Her song says, Praise to the Lord mightily, for he has triumphed. The horse and its rider he has thrown into the sea. And they begin to have a worship service there on the banks of the Red Sea. There's also a song by a lady named Hannah. It's in 1 Samuel chapter 2. Hannah was barren like Elizabeth, unable to give birth. And the Lord opened her womb and allowed her to become pregnant. And she gave birth to a boy. His name was Samuel. And she gave thanks to God and she committed Samuel to the priesthood. Samuel was raised uh, by a priest named Eli. But in that miracle that God did, Hannah also sings a song. And Hannah's song actually runs parallel to Mary's song. So we have these faithful women in the Israelite story that when God breaks in, they sing. They offer us a picture of joy. They offer us a, a response of, of praise to, to when God breaks in. And what I find just really significant about the Magnificat is that uh, it's the boldness and the confidence that this, let's call her 15 years old, this 15-year-old peasant girl from Nazareth, she prays with boldness, she sings with boldness and confidence. There is an assurance that God is going to honor his promises. Uh, she uses a particular verb tense. If I, could, if I could bog down with the original language just for a second, I think, you, I think you'll appreciate this. In verses 51 through 55, she uses a, a verb tense that is lost in our English translation. It's called the aorist tense. And it refers to action that has happened in the past that has ongoing and continual results in the future indefinitely. That this action in the past, this thing that happens, will continue to reverberate indefinitely uh, in, in the future. We really don't have anything like that uh, in, in the English, and so it's, it's difficult to, to translate these aorist verbs a lot, and so you just get a past tense verb in the English. So 51 through 55, you see all these things that God is doing. He performed mighty deeds. He scattered those who are proud. He brought down rulers. He has lifted up the humble. He's filled the hungry. All these past tense verbs. But in the original language, that past tense thing that happened continues in the future. Any good Greek professor will explain it to you this way. Uh, this, this is an old joke, um, but I bet it's new to you. Your Greek professor will say this. You see, there are kielbasas, hot dogs, Italian sausages, and the fiesta dog. 
The heiress tense is like the fiesta dog. Once you eat it once, it has effects that last forever. I didn't say it was a good joke. But it helps you understand what's going on here. And so these rulers are brought down. The humble are exalted. The hungry are filled. The rich displaced. The lowly remembered. This is, these are the things that the Messiah is, is going to do. Mary is saying it with confidence. She's singing with confidence, knowing that even though those things are not a present reality, God's done them in the past, and they are going to continue to be worked out in the future. As you look at our world, I mean, as you scan the headlines, as you see what's going on in our world, does that appear to be true? Is this work of the Messiah becoming a reality around us, or are we constantly inundated with one bad news story after another? If you just look casually at like our world, it doesn't appear that these things are becoming a reality. The, the lowly are not being exalted. The proud and the powerful, they don't appear to be humbled. There's plenty of hungry people among us. But Mary prays boldly and she sings boldly. She's saying that when Messiah completes his work, that the world is going to be turned right side up. And this waiting for God, waiting for what God has done in the past to become a reality in the future, a, a full reality in the future, is what Advent's all about. It's this season in which we wait, we watch, we, we listen we work, and, and Advent teaches us to sing in the midst of all this. It teaches us to sing of the one who has already defeated selfishness and, and pride and oppression and death. You see, God has already defeated these things in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And we are here in this Advent season, waiting for it to become a full reality, waiting for it to be worked out in our world, waiting for it to be realized here and to her and to him and with us. We're waiting for that. So we're here in our mess, we're here in our dysfunction, we're here in our distress, we're here in our pain. But what Mary's song reminds us is that God has already done it. God has already accomplished it in Christ. And he's faithful in the waiting. So how do we wait? <laughs> well, I would say one of the things that, that I see happening in our world, and I've just mentioned one social issue that, that certainly captures this, but man, we sure do like to argue and fight a lot, don't we? There are, there are very few issues that I see dominating our headlines that, that we can reach consensus on. And so we entrench ourselves and we have people on the right and people on the left and they're fighting about lots of different things and they're important things. They, they, they do matter. It's not to say they're not important, but we, have, we live in a world of prose. We live in a world of sound bites. We live in a world of gotcha moments. We live in a, a world of, of, you know, angry tweets. 
And so we're trying to solve these complex problems and sound bites and tweets and the right's getting mad at the left and the left's getting mad at the right. And there's just lots of pros. There's lots of my answer's better than your answer. I don't think you're right. In fact, I think you're a terrible person. Lots of pros. Lots of people trying to explain a lot of different things. A lot of anger. Instead of pros, instead of gotcha moments, instead of pithy tweets, the church is called to sing a song. The church is called to be a people of poetry. We're called to sing a song that is so beautiful that it transcends the anger and it transcends the hate and it paints the picture of a world that Messiah is bringing, that that Christ is bringing, that, that when he comes, all of these things that are unjust about our world are going to be made right in Christ. Mary invites us to to sing. She invites us to be a people of poetry in a world of prose. But there's there's another way that that prose functions in our our world. You've probably come into this place and you're bringing some pain. You're bringing suffering. You're, You're bringing loss into this place. And as humans, we cannot resist the urge to help you explain your loss. We, we, just, we just are bad at this. We cannot resist the urge to, 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 to sit with you in your loss and in your grief and in your pain. And somewhere along the way, we feel like we have to say some kind of answer. We have to bring you some kind of solution. We have to say something like, well... At least it's not as bad as fill in the blank. And, and, and those of us that have experienced loss and pain in this year, I know there's a lot of us, you're finding those solutions and that prose to be so empty. You're finding those explanations to be so inadequate. We do want answers. We do want explanations. We do wish God would break in and tell us why. God, could you just break in and explain at least some of this suffering that I am enduring today? But where the Bible is short on these kinds of answers, it is rich in song. It is rich in the faithful songs of people like Mary. It is rich in the songs of people that have endured challenges and endured suffering and endured grief. And in the midst of that, God gave them a song. And so, friends, the song awakens us. The song awakens us to the world that is possible in Christ. It it, it awakens us to think of the world in, in new ways. And and what I I want us to learn to do in Advent, what I want us to learn to do in this season is to sing faithful songs. Like, friends, we're not always going to have the right answer. We're not going to have the the, the Bible quiz answer that's going to explain every mystery. We're just not always going to have that. 
But we can always be people of songs. We can always be people of beautiful poetry. We can always be people that sing songs of what God has done in the past. And we can sing them in the aorist tense. We can sing them knowing that what God has done in the past, he is going to continue in the future. And so your suffering, your pain, your grief, what you are enduring in this moment is not purposeless. It is a part of what God is ultimately doing to make the world right and good and true and beautiful again. And this is what he will do when he returns. So while we wait for his return, we sing. It's the faithful response of God's people to sing. So it's not Christmas for me until I sing a carol. It's called, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. We're going we're gonna to close with this carol, but I want to tell you a little bit of the history behind this. You're getting a lot of Latin today, by the way. But it was originally written in Latin over 1,200 years ago. Church, just think about it. The songs we sing to commemorate the birth of Christ, some of them are over 1,200 years old. We're part of something very rich today. And in, in the monasteries, this would be part of the build-up to Christmas. And this hymn was originally just simply known as the antiphons or the antiphones. And the antiphones were sung. There were seven stanzas to this hymn, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. And on the seven days leading up to Christmas, one antiphone would be sung each day leading up to Christmas Day. And I want to tell you, let me just walk through what each one of these antiphones or these, the verses to this hymn, I want to walk through the first word of them in Latin. And by the way, in your hymnal, if you remember what a hymnal is, usually there are only four stanzas that are printed, but there originally were seven. And so each antiphone begins with a different Latin word. The word, first one is sapentia, which means wisdom. Second one is adnai, which means Hebrew, or, or that's actually a Hebrew word for God. Rodix jesse, which is Latin for stem or root of jesse. Clavis David, which is key of David. Oriens, which means day spring in Latin. Rex gentium, which means king of the Gentiles. And then it climaxes on that seventh day with a word familiar to us, O Emmanuel. Now, if you put these words together, if you take the first letter of each word, it forms an acronym. And the acronym is SARCOR, which literally means nothing. But the hymn writer is doing something incredible here. The verses clearly tell the descent of Jesus from heaven to earth, finally climaxing in Emmanuel, God with us. And so they, they tell the story of God's descent, where the word became flesh here. But the real genius is when you look at the acronym backwards. And you are reminded that not only did God descend in Christ, but he then ascended back into heaven. And when he ascended, he gave a promise to his followers. 
And that's the genius of the hymn because spelled backwards, this acronym forms a Latin phrase, arrow cross, two words, arrow cross, meaning I will be present tomorrow. I will be present tomorrow. And so for those of us who are coming into this place with grief and suffering and loss and we have more questions than we have answers, we're invited to sing. And the content of our song confirms to us a promise that I will be with you tomorrow. I will be present tomorrow. Tomorrow. 